In 2021, Winter Storm Uri made its way over Texas, at least temporarily knocking out power across the state for over 11 million people. By the time power was restored over three days later, hundreds had died, billions of dollars of damage to infrastructure and homes had occurred, and food and water shortages had hit many parts of the state. The Texas Grid's failure prompted public resignations at the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, or ERCOT, the organization that operates the state's electric grid and has led to state and federal investigations into the disaster. The storm demonstrated the increasing electricity demands in Texas, something true of the whole country and the world as well. As we work to decarbonize our future, what are we doing to electrify more aspects of our lives? Where will that power come from, and how can we ensure we have a safe supply of energy? I'm Weston Twardowski, an instructor in Rice University's Environmental Studies Program and the Program Manager of the Deluvial Houston Initiative, and you're listening to Gulf Streams on KPFT Houston, where we talk with leading experts and community leaders to better understand the environmental problems and potential solutions facing our community. Today on Gulf Streams, we're speaking with Dan Cohan, professor of civil and environmental engineering at Rice University and the author of Confronting Climate Gridlock, How Diplomacy, Technology, and Policy Can Unlock a Clean Energy Future. We'll talk about Dr. Cohan's book, The Future of Clean Energy Here in Texas and Beyond. And if you have a question for Dr. Cohan, please call in at 713-526-KPFT, extension 2. That's 713-526-KPFT, extension 2. Now, before we jump into our conversation, I want to remind you that KPFT is currently in our October fund drive. As public radio, KPFT can only exist with your support. Over 90% of our funding comes from listeners like you. If you're enjoying Gulf Streams and want to support our work, please call 713-526-KPFT and pledge a donation. You can make a one-time donation or become a monthly sustainer to support our work. In the coming weeks, Gulf Streams will feature conversations with local advocates about regenerative agriculture and urban farming. We'll discuss new green jobs like sustainability officers with leaders in the field. And we'll meet with city officials to discuss what's happening with transportation and development in Houston. We'll also talk with Pulitzer Prize finalist Elizabeth Rush all about our new book, The Quickening, Creation Community at the Ends of the Earth. And if you pledge $100 or more to Gulf Streams, we'll automatically enter you in a raffle for a signed copy of The Quickening by Elizabeth Rush. Additionally, if you want to become a station sustainer, ask about our memory bricks, permanent inscribed tributes to your generosity here at the studio, and during our entire pledge month for every $1,000 donated to KPFT Houston, we'll be donating a parka to the Houston Center for Independent Living. Call 713-526-KPFT to learn about all the unique pledge drive offerings going on this month. We're delighted to bring important conversations about environmental and climate issues here in Houston and beyond to you from Gulf Streams and can only do so with your support. So please call 713-526-KPFT, make a one-time or subscriber donation, mention Gulf Streams, and help us keep ad-free public radio on the air here in Houston. Uh, Professor Cohan, thank you so much for joining in today. Thank you, Weston. Um, just to start us off, I- I'd like to start talking about your recent book, Confronting Climate Gridlock, which is outstanding and really comprehensive, uh, a series of blueprints really about steps we should take to confront climate change globally, but particularly around energy issues. And one of the things that you put forward is that the U.S. needs to be a leader in this space in particular. And I'm wondering if you can just start off by telling us why that's so important for the U.S. to step up, and then maybe discuss what you think Texas's role is as 
because we are the second largest state in terms of population and geography here in the U.S.? Yeah, great questions. Um, yeah, so for the U.S. to clean up its emissions is a necessary but not sufficient uh, step towards what we need to confront climate gridlock to address climate change. Historically, the United States is the largest emitter of CO2. If you were to put a tag on all the CO2 molecules that have been added since the Industrial Revolution, more of them would have a U.S. tag than any other country. Um, But our role in emissions has been declining. China Mm -hmm. now emits far more than the United States does, and the U.S. share has fallen uh, to around 14% of global emissions. So it's gotten to the point where you can't expect the rest of the world to get towards net zero if the U.S. is still emitting Mm. 6, 7 billion tons a year. But even if we shrink that and shrink that to zero, then the other 86% of the world's emissions would still be there. And so the key take-home message of the book is how can we shrink our emissions in ways that make it possible for the rest of the world to shrink emissions too? And I um, put the framing on that that we can't just think about shrinking our carbon footprint, doing less shivering in the dark. That's not (laughs) going to be ways that the rest of the world will want to emulate. So how Mm -hmm. can we, um, as a relatively wealthy nation, do steps that bring down the cost of clean energy, make it so that as other parts of the world are growing faster, they'll want to make those leaps straight to clean energy, not going through the coal phase, the oil, Mm -hmm. the natural gas phase we did, just like parts of the world have jump straight to cell phones without going through the landline phase. (laughs) Let's help them make it so that they want to go straight to uh, clean energy, straight to electric cars, straight to cleaner ways of doing things as they bring their people out of poverty, as they um, move to brighter futures. That's a great analogy. I've not heard anyone use the landline to cell phone analogy, although I've heard people talk about this. You know, yeah, that we've got other countries that are kind of hitting these earlier industrial phases that we went through. And so the pitch here is it's, you know, we need to lead in this space, create technology, and then essentially make it possible for others to jump in several steps down that process without without jumping in at the, the base level. Um, and so I'm wondering, I want to go back for a second, because you did say cl- climate gridlock, and I really should have started with, what, what is climate gridlock? You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's the title of your book, but also what do you mean by that? How are you thinking about climate gridlock? Yeah, so it's, I guess, sort of a middle stage that I feel like we're at, where mm. we're not at an existential catastrophe that the world's about to come to an end, but we're also not doing nearly enough to get temperatures to where we want them to be, to get emissions towards net zero like we say we're heading. And so we're at this muddle in between where we're not acting fast enough. But I also try to, as someone, a father of two teenagers, as uh, someone who teaches at Rice University, works with a lot of students, try to get away from this existential threat Mm. doomism where people think, oh, there won't be a future uh, for me. So um, saying we've come a long way in in making us ourselves not be on that terrible pathway we thought we were on 10 or 20 years ago, but here's what we need to do more, and here's what we need to do that can both mitigate climate change and um, help eradicate some of the problems of energy poverty, help uh, improve lives in the United States and around the world by taking prudent steps to bring down emissions in ways that that move us to, to cleaner energy and have so many other benefits come with it. It's interesting that you say, you know, we're, we're not on that path we were 20 years ago. So, I mean, it sounds like, you know, from from what you're describing, that we're, we're not on this apocalypse path that maybe we thought we were, but actually there are really tangible things we can and should be doing to make sure that the the impacts of climate change 
change are not more severe than they currently are and with current projections, which, of course, has a lot of latitude. But in particular in the book, you lay out kind of a series of what you call pillars of decarbonization. And I'm wondering if you can talk through some of these pillars with us and what you're seeing is these really essential steps we have to take to prevent, you know, more damage, more harm coming down the road. Yeah. So the three central pillars of what we need to to build up are the pillars that take us to a clean energy future is that at the core of the problem is the fact that 80% of the country's energy, 80% of the world's energy is still coming from fossil fuels. We think that there's been this, Mm. this huge change because solar is the fastest growing source of energy. Wind energy has been growing fast. There's a lot of interest in geothermal, um, But so far, that's only been enough to keep pace with growing demand at a time when we're not adding hydropower dams. We've stopped building new nuclear power plants. And so um, only by switching from 80% fossil fuels to at least 80% something cleaner can we um, address this crisis. So what do we need to do to build up an energy economy that's based on clean energy rather than based on fossil fuels really comes down to three central pillars. One is uh, the efficiency pillar is that if we don't really embark on energy efficiency at a level that we've never seen before, the problem will just be too big because we don't Mm -hmm. just want the energy needs of today. We want a population that's growing and that has growing needs for mobility, for electricity access and so on. And only if we can meet those needs as efficiently as possible is this problem solvable. Second, and the central pillar, and that I assume we'll transition at some point to talking about how this pillar <laughs> fell down temporarily in Texas, but is the, the clean electricity pillar. Mm-hmm. Because in this country, we think about emissions, we think about cars and trucks. U.S. is unique in having transportation as our biggest source of emissions, but globally, power plants are the biggest source of emissions. Globally, our generation of electricity is where the most planet-warming emissions come from, and we need electricity generation to probably at least double globally to meet growing needs. And uh, because electric cars, because electrified industry, electrified heat are going to mean switching some of the things that directly burn fossil fuels now to pivoting to electricity. So we need to not just replace the coal and gas plants that we have today, but but grow up so much of a clean electricity supply that it, it grows to meet the needs of the future. And then the third pillar comes in using that clean electricity, using that second pillar to power other needs of economy of the economy. So people say, electrify, 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 electrify everything. We can't quite do that, but there are a lot of purposes where where we need to electrify our vehicles, Mm -hmm. our um, heating through heat pumps, which can be so much more efficient than furnaces. So many parts of the economy can be both cleaner, more affordable, and uh, more efficient if we move to electricity. And then realizing there are some uh, things that can't be electrified. And so finding clean fuels that can be used in those cases. Yeah, I mean, you actually quote someone in the book who talks very specifically, I'll I'll maybe jump to something that I think a lot of folks think about, which is the electric car side. Um, And you quote someone who talks about, you know, that, that it's basically inevitable that we're here. And I think a lot of us feel like, okay, the electric car is here, is coming in at the same time. The infrastructure feels kind of far away. You know, every every week I seem to read in some major newspaper, you know, my horrible electric card road trip. Mm-hmm. Like, 
And I think this gets to, you know, both the efficiency, but also part of what you're talking about is like the infrastructure that has to get built up to support these things. And that feels mm-hmm. really tangible with electric cars because we think about like, how far can I drive? Will I make it to Austin? Will I make it to San Antonio? Mm-hmm. That feels very absolute in our head. But I think these infrastructures, you know, can you talk more about how these infrastructures have to be built up and what we need to be doing, not just for cars, but also more broadly? Because I think that's a big idea running through this is, you know, this, we're not actually really set up for this transition yet. Right. Transition has a long way to go. You talk about, (laughs) you know, being able to get to Austin, being able to get to San Antonio or Dallas. Um, As an electric car family, what we found is the challenge is how do you get back? Is that often it's okay to get there, but it it really changes the trip. There's, it's not as ubiquitous as Mm. the gasoline station on every corner where you really have to plan ahead. Where is that high speed charger? Um, And you know, having the level two charger, the type of charger in your garage mm. is great for everyday use, is great for getting around Houston, but um, the system isn't there yet to make it as seamless to be able to go city to city, to go across states with this network. And it's growing fast, but you know, we have to remember the, the gasoline stations, the carbonized infrastructure was built up over the course of a century to making it so ubiquitous, making it so easy to burn fossil fuels. We need to transition much faster than that. We need we don't have a century to wait to make it so that uh, it's easy to drive electric cars. It's easy. It's the natural choice to have the most efficient uh, electrified heating possible, that we transition industry to the cleaner sources. And so it's going to really take a rapid buildup of, of infrastructure, and that is going to take building things. It's going to take um, you know some incentives or other means at first when you're building these stations before there are enough cars to to be charging up and and bringing in revenue for them but realizing that the number of electric cars on the road is likely to be 10 times higher uh by sometime in the 2030s and so are we going to build out the infrastructure to to be ready for that and make it so that people want to make that switch well i think that's also something that you know it, it gets to the efficiency side as well as you talk about actually investing in these things today saves us a lot of money down the road that these mm-hmm. these investments for the future are really critical i mean at one point you kind of you compare it to uh, i think you you talk a little about the, the moon landing and like the amount that we dedicate towards the moon landing compared to what we're putting in and so i'm wondering you know what are these priorities of what are the things we need to be funding right now both to make this transition easier for us in the long run but also to do the the important work of moving more towards electric and decarbonization urbanizing sources. Mm-hmm. The way I like to frame that question is to mm-hmm. think, what technologies do we need to make cheap? What technologies mm-hmm. do we need to make better? How can we have the clean technologies that we need go through the same amazing uh, revolution, the same amazing pathway that we've seen with some pivotal technologies? What we've seen with LED lights, what mm-hmm. we've seen with uh, solar panels, what we saw with uh, wind turbines a decade ago was that costs came down by more than 90%. Is that if you you know looked at when LED lights were starting, it was <laughs> 30 times the cost of an incandescent bulb. No one would have wanted to use it. And now it's the ubiquitous choice. Now it's what everyone plugs in without thinking about it. If you look at solar, it was only you know, affordable enough to put on satellites or put in our little TI calculators that we used growing <laughs> up. And now it's the cheapest form of electricity that the world yeah. has ever known. And how do we make those uh, paths? And, and where a country like the United States or wealthy parts of the world, European Union, Japan, Australia, others can play that role is what 
technologies are right at that pivot point. What isn't quite at that being the best and cheapest option yet, but with that uh, added amount of deployment might be able to bring its cost down. And so I look at um, electric cars, I look at um, some of the battery technologies that's being needed, I look at the cleaner ways of making hydrogen and fuels derived from it, look at heat pumps being pivotal, look at cleaner ways of making steel and cement and aluminum and how do we make sure that we pay that bit of extra money now that we do that extra research and development that we do some of the demonstration projects that are needed here and bring those down the cost curve so that it becomes self-sustaining because what we see with these technologies um, is something that uh, some technologists call swanson's law people may have heard of of moore's law with computer chips how does year after year, decade after decade, those kept getting better and faster and smaller. What we see with clean energy technologies or with a lot of technologies that you can commoditize, that you can make again and again and again in modular ways in factories, is that the more you do them, the faster that the costs can come down. Mm -hmm. And on average, with each of these technologies, if you look at these cost curves that LED lights have undergone, that wind turbines underwent, that solar panels have gone, for each doubling of cumulative global deployments that you've had, the costs have come down. It differs with each one, but it's in the ballpark of 20%. Mm. And if you have enough doublings, enough 20% uh, compounding declines, you can have something that seemed exorbitantly expensive become the best and cheapest option. So how can we get that magical virtuous cycle, that that cycle that the more you do, the more that you want to do, the more that you can drive that cost down. How do we have that happen for, for geothermal? How do we have that happen for offshore wind? How do we have that happen um, for these technologies that we need for a cleaner future? So it's really just speeding up that cost reduction is what we're getting at. Then that's, that's, is that fair? Or? Yeah. How do you sort of grease the curve? How do you, how do you get it, push it <laughs> along the way? How do you get that where we need to be? And Fortunately, it's it's not a Sisyphus situation. <laughs> We're not forever pushing the boulder up the hill. If you sort of think of a of a cost curve, these these costs trend down. They want to go in that mm. direction, um, but it's there's a lot of friction. There's a lot of impediments. There are a lot of speed bumps that keep that from moving forward. Especially in the early the phases where the where so it's it not quite the cheapest the option. <laughs> where, yeah, where heat pumps aren't quite necessarily the cheapest, at mm. least up front way to go and and so making those early investments up front especially with with people and with countries that have the means to make those investments that's how you make it so that when other economies are growing that becomes the cheapest and the best option that they'll uh, want to follow as well okay so i think that's you know i think that's a good place to start pivoting a little towards what are these future green techs that we're seeing what you know obviously there's solar and wind and you've already talked about those costs have come down but you've mentioned geothermal you mentioned nuclear you mentioned hydro where do you see the future of these clean energy sources and i mean i read the book so i have an idea of where Uh you stand but for listeners you know can you can you tell us a little about which of these you think are viable options and which Mm -hmm. are developing um and maybe which ones actually are are starting to perceive phased out Mm -hmm. so i think we've gotten to the point where it's clear that wind and solar have won the race of being the cheapest most available clean electricity technologies and so if we're serious about building out a clean grid quickly president biden has set a goal of 
clean electricity by 2035 nationally. I, I don't expect that we'll actually achieve that. I would would wish it was otherwise. A lot of states, though, have set targets between mm-hmm. 2040 and 2050 when they've committed their states to go 100% clean electricity. So with those kind of timelines, you have to go with the technology that you can build most quickly that is for now the cheapest form of clean electricity. It's actually cheaper than fossil electricity now if you're building from scratch. And so wind and solar has won that race, and it's a matter of just deploy, 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 build out. Um, but there are times that it's not windy, and there are times that are it's not sunny. This is it's a common complaint it's, we it's hear usually, in Texas is like, oh, but what happens when right. it's shady? What happens? Right. So what do we do? We've actually done, <laughs> done substantial research in my group at Rice mm-hmm. University where we've shown wind and solar are usually complementary. On mm. average, winds blow stronger at night, which makes them a great complement to daytime solar. Winds in West Texas blow at very different times than winds along the South Texas coast, where you have sea breezes that pick up mm. on summer afternoons, where our air conditioners need it most. If we weren't so foolish and running our grid in an isolated <laughs> way, we could be exporting that solar and wind power to other states and then bringing power in from uh, winds that blow at different times in Wyoming or sunshine that's mm-hmm. at different times in Nevada than it is in Florida and could really benefit by blending wind and solar over broader areas. Even doing that, it's still not a 100% solution. There's still um, at least 10% of the time when it's neither windy nor sunny where yeah. where you need it to be. So how do we and make times up for that gap? in, especially in colder climates where you have winter situations, as I guess winter storm you already hit home, where you have what the Germans call the Dunkelflaut, the, the dark doldrums, <laughs> this time when it's both dark and slow winds for weeks at a time. And lithium-ion batteries are great for a couple hours, but they can't get you through these long periods. We need other sources that can blend in for both brief times when it's not sunny and windy. Think after the sun sets and air conditioners are still humming on a, on a um, summer afternoon and think – you know, cold regions a week or two at a time when it mm. might be tough. And, and it may be different solutions for each of those, but we need other sources that are probably going to be more expensive unit for unit or probably each kilowatt hour is going to cost more, but um, but give us sources that we need. And, and I think that's where the battle is taking shape is there are a lot of different visions. What provides us that last, whether it's 10 or 20 or 30% that solar mm. and wind can't cover even as we grow them out as fast as we can, um, there's some competing ideas of what what you blend in to to get us to a more fully can you decarbonized walk us grid. Through what those are and what you think the most likely ones yeah. are. Yeah, I, I think it's going to come across a spectrum that we don't just think of it as a supply problem, but mm-hmm. also think of it as a demand problem. How can we make demand more efficient? How can we make demand more flexible? And how can we have storage that both meet some short-term needs where I think lithium-ion batteries have won the race and and perhaps day-long or a couple-day-long storage where it's still an open question what those technologies will be. So I guess stepping through those on demand, um, just actually had a paper, an article come out in the conversation last week where I described virtual power plants, which is an mm-hmm. idea of how do we turn negative demand or flexible demand into seeing it as a supply source itself, into seeing it as a virtual power plant where you can pool together industries that agree to, to tune down their use or smart water So this water gets back to the efficiency pillar. <laughs> efficiency, but but in a smart, you know, it, in ways that um, that's making demand more flexible specifically mm. of there are water heaters that can be designed to sense when the grid is 
has surplus conditions. We have times when power prices are nearly free or negative. When it's super windy, can we heat up the water a little bit hotter in our water heater tanks at those times and then turn off the water heater when the sun is setting, when the grid is tightest, and so we can have water heater use flex its demand? Can you have thermostats flex demand? Can you have industries flex demand? We hear that Bitcoin miners are are doing this, (laughs) but how can it be more than just Bitcoin miners profiting from that? And so we can do a lot more. It, It ties together with the efficiency and with the flexible demand, or sometimes called demand response in the industry. But that can take us a lot of the way to being more flexible. Uh, there will be need for for storage, and lithium-ion batteries have come way down in price. We see larger projects being built, but they are expensive, and yeah. energy gets lost in the charging and discharging, so it's not a perfect solution. A lot of uh, precious materials go into those facilities. And then we will need supply sources that blend together wind and solar. And we have some research into geothermal where that's mm-hmm. that's one of those technologies that I think is at a real pivot point or transition point where it's been a virtually stagnant industry. If you look at how much has been built the past few decades in this country, and yet there are te- some technologies emerging that are still more expensive than wind or solar or natural gas, but are showing the potential that they could be modularized, that you and could that be curve, we were hit that curve. About, and yeah. so that's the sort of place where you would want to see that investment. You would want to see those mm. efforts and, and give it a chance to to prove out. Um, the comp- a competing technology that's trying to go that way is, is nuclear. I, I don't see it, unfortunately, <laughs> um, having as much... Uh, prospect of hitting those cost curves, its costs have actually gone up since I was a toddler. When I was a toddler was the last time that we built nuclear plants in this country. There's hope in that area, but but so far it's not looking as promising. Um, But a variety of technologies that – there's wave technology, there's sort of advanced (laughs) ways of doing small-scale hydro, a number of ideas that have been put out there, but somehow we're going to need something uh, to blend in those those times that the other approaches uh, can't solve for. I think that's also really critical to think about. You know, here we're, we're in Houston. Houston loves to proclaim itself the energy capital of the world. You know, what does this transition mean for those of us who live in Houston and in Texas more broadly, maybe, but especially thinking about, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, okay, if we're going to do a transition, uh, but Houston's not really a leader in solar and wind necessarily. You know, the corporations that are headed here aren't necessarily in that field. So geothermal tends to be one that folks go, oh, it still kind of feels like drilling. <laughs> like, okay, yeah. maybe that's something familiar. So I'm wondering if you can talk about, you know, what do you see for the future of Houston and what should Houston and Houstonians be doing in thinking about as the screen transition comes, mm-hmm. as these electric sources change, what should we be doing to encourage maybe those companies to come here or else think realistically about what does a less present oil and gas future mean for our city? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this future of Houston and Texas in the energy transition is something that I think about a lot, think about Mm -hmm. very deeply. It's um, at the heart of what I'm working on in the very, very early stages of working on my next book, but it's something that hits close to home as as a fourth-generation Texan who grew up in Dallas, who (laughs) uh, lives and is raising a family here in Houston, as someone who spent each of my summers during college working at a camp in rural West Virginia and seeing what happens when a fossil fuel industry leaves and a state doesn't yeah. think proactively about how to get, in that case, beyond the coal industry that it was so reliant on. Mm-hmm. And so how can we 
be sure that we're proactive and not getting to the point where we're in a what, permanent what has been our, <laughs> where we're in a downward spiral that uh, that you really don't want to see. Um, what makes me hopeful is that I see so many of these new industries coming in just a few blocks away from here, driving to the radio station, passed by the Ion and Greentown Labs, where you see a lot mm. of startups moving in, moving into this space. And I think even though we're vulnerable by being in the oil and gas space, which I just got back from a meeting with International Energy Agency in Paris, and their head said their projections now show oil, gas, and coal use will all peak and start declining by 2030. Some people disagree, wow. but at some point yeah. we're going to hit a peak, and and you can have a, that a declining like industry. A, is it a five-year or ten-year timeline, which is not – They think 2030, U.S. Yeah. – uh, EIA thinks otherwise. It's still a, an open question, but at some point we're going to hit a decline. Fortunately, I think these industries, if they act proactively, if they act ahead, can have competitive advantages to pivot into where we need to be headed. So we mentioned geothermal in my book. I, I profile uh, Tim Latimer, who I met when he was just getting started out in a uh, incubator out at Berkeley National Labs. He was out in California. Why did he move back to Texas to create his company, he found this is where the talent was. This is where the drilling expertise, this yeah. is where the oil and gas expertise, the the fiber optics, the, the talent that he needed, he can't find anywhere better than, than in Texas. So a lot of these technologies that have been developed for fracking, for horizontal drilling can be what the geothermal industry needs to make electricity in a clean way. A lot of what's been learned about how you need to build offshore rigs that can withstand a Gulf of Mexico hurricane can also be what you need so that our offshore wind infrastructure can wow. can be able to withstand strong storms. The ability to build huge projects, whether it's refineries, petrochemical plants, that's the type of scale you're going to need to produce hydrogen in cleaner ways, to be able to produce what some people call electrofuels, so fuels that take electricity to make hydrogen and then turn mm. it into ammonia, turn it into to methanol, turn it into synthetic uh, fuels, or even ways that you could upgrade biofuels in ways that you can you can make molecules from, um, from electricity. That's something where the ability to, to build products, to build uh, chemicals and molecules at at massive scales is something that the industry is is ready for if they're willing to pivot if they're willing to move into new spaces um with some of the capabilities that they have i'm going to pause us here for just a second to say we're at the half hour mark uh, you're listening to kpft houston this is gulf streams and i just want to remind listeners that we are in our october fund drive and as public radio kpft can houston can only exist with your support over 90 percent of our funding comes from listeners like you if you're enjoying gulf streams and you want to support our work please call 713-526 kpft and pledge a donation um we are looking for monthly sustainers. We're looking for one-time donors. Anything you can donate, please call in uh, and make a donation today to help keep us on the air. Uh, and if you have a question for Professor Cohan uh, about the grid, about uh, our energy transition, energy futures, please give us a call as well and, and call in and uh, speak with him directly. Um, so, so back to what we were just saying. One of the things I wanted to ask about, because you were talking about this a little bit earlier, is that ability of uh, wind and solar.
smaller to move across space. But that also requires a huge infrastructure build out, right? Are we mm-hmm. actually really at a place where, you know, if we connected the, the Texas grid magically today to the rest of the country, could we actually be exporting that energy? Or what do we need to do to get to the place where we do have a more nationally connected grid that can move, you know, really long distances, uh, these different sources of energy to where they're going to need to go? Yeah, uh, we're modeling that exact question with some electricity grid models that Mm -hmm. National Renewable Energy Lab developed. And in model world, it it does a huge amount of good, is that if we take some projects that have already been on the drawing boards and assume they get built, ones that have uh, companies that want to build connections to tie ERCOT and Texas west to the western grid or east to the eastern grid, um, those could really help us close down coal plants much faster because mm. they would mean we could bring in power at those times when it's not windy or sunny in Texas and and we're still relying on these old, very dirty coal plants. And it means that most of the time, Texas is <clears throat> one of the least cost places for building wind and solar. It's easier to build stuff here than elsewhere. And so you would end up building more wind and solar if it wasn't bottled up in the state and be able to send it to other states, help other states close down some of their fossil fuel power plants as well. So unbelievable uh, potential to, if we link Texas with other parts of the country, key potential if we stitch together those eastern and western grids, allow power to be moved Mm. across there and be moved across key nodes. I think we've gotten away from a notion that was actually the first interview I did for this book was a a Houston entrepreneur who wanted to build power lines, for example, from an area where you could build wind farms in the Oklahoma panhandle out to the Memphis area, Mm. these sort of one-off lines taking it from one supply to a very distant potential customer so far haven't worked out. But I think there's a need for these stitching together lines, these lines Mm. that might be much shorter, but allow you to wheel around power between the different regional grids of the country that could have a lot of potential. All this works great in theory. The problem is there are a lot of landowners, a lot of county commissioners who don't want power lines going through their properties. And so we often see this disconnect that as energy scholars, as computer modelers, as others, we see this would be the perfect solution. This would be the least (laughs) cost way. You could save so much land. You could save so much cost. You could close your polluting coal plants faster. You could bring people lower cost electricity if only we could put in these imagined power lines <laughs> in onto the grid. And then you hit into every single landowner and every single county commission that, that can get in the way. And unfortunately, it's too, been too difficult to build things in this country. Texas is actually a leader in that. Texas for a while was was building more transmission lines than any oh, other wow. state in the country back uh 10, 15 years ago, added $7 billion of transmission lines. That's what enabled the the wind boom in Texas that made Texas the leading state for wind. But it's been much tougher in other countries. You have a number of blue states. You have Maine and Massachusetts, upstate New York, where uh, power lines have been resisted and projects that would have made a lot of sense in theory get objected to. So I think that's a lot of what we don't know how this energy transition will unfold is how much will we stitch together? How much will we be able to blend together the best resources? And how much do we need to go with local or second or third best options because of how difficult it is to build some projects? The reality on the ground. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. um, I see that we have a call from Lee. So we're going to go over to Lee now. Um, hi, Lee. You're on the air. What's your question? Well, 
Lee, it's not high yet, but I might be tonight. That's a joke. <laughs> uh, my question is, when you put in solar or wind, do you have to go through an inverter, converter, and a separate panel to get to your main panel, or is there a, a method to do it by direct feed to not interfere with the incoming commercial lines? Yeah, so solar uh, produces DC power, so there is an inverter that that makes its power uh, ready to be transmitted on the AC grid. So, so the inverters are are a key part of of solar farms and solar operations. So, what about wind? Do they do the same thing? Uh, wind power is able to to produce in ways that that it provides power straight to the grid. So, um, it's operating in those ways. And I think one th- one of the areas where there's a lot of interest is how do you take these sources that operate in a bit different ways from traditional sources and still have the inertia, still have some of the ancillary services that you need and being able to to provide exactly the frequency you need, exactly the the smooth operation that the grid needs to be able to keep power up and running 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And the I'm not an electrical engineer, but but the, the people who who do this work uh, keep getting better and better ways to to maintain the grid, to operate these systems in ways that that we can have higher and higher levels of, of wind and solar on the grid without disrupting operation. And, and you've been seeing it in practice. You've been seeing Scotland and other areas where uh, you have the vast majority of power at certain times coming from wind and solar. And so uh, often at levels that, that electrical engineers previously thought couldn't be operated with without the without the inertia of a fossil or hydro power plant. So the, the technology keeps getting better and better for doing that. I have one other question, and I got I got think about got think about how to do this. If you have a windmill that's going to or a wind generator that's going to put out AC, you still have to have a controller box that's going to separate between incoming power and auxiliary power. Is that correct? Well, I mean, the wind farms are usually an easier operation, and the wind farms are no, 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 pushing no. power no, no, onto no. the onto the no, grid. No, whereas, no, 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 not a wind farm. If you have personally a windmill or a, or a wind generator on your property, do you have to have an inverter type box? Lee, this is this is a bit technical for us, um, and I think I'm going to pull us away from this question to to get us back into some some broader conversation. But thank you very much for calling in. If you want to follow up with an email, I'm happy to connect you with some folks who who might be able to answer that directly off air. Thanks very much, Lee. Um, so, Dan, I want to move over to uh, some some broader talk about the grid. I think I'd be remiss. Uh, Winter Storm Uri certainly put things in perspective, as we were talking about at the beginning of the show. We've mentioned it a couple of times. But also, you know, we had multiple times this summer we were under uh, warnings on, you know, the high energy use and, and please conserve. Uh, so can you talk to us a little bit about the Texas grid specifically, both what happened in the storm, because there was a lot of blame thrown around on a lot of sides, but also then what have we been doing to improve the grid or to make it safe or safer and how safe is our grid now? <laughs> uh, yeah. Could certainly yeah. devote an entire radio <laughs> show just to that topic. So, so there's a lot there. Um, I mean, part of it is we have these vulnerabilities that are built upon decisions made many decades ago to decide to operate our electric grid as an Island to operate mm. 
in isolation from the two other main grids that connect all the rest of United States and Western Canada, the rest of Eastern United States and Eastern Canada, and, and here we are as an island, which means that we have much less ability to import and export. So that was a, a fundamental decision that that means whatever happens in Texas stays in Texas and that we, we have these vulnerabilities when things get tight. With You bring up Winter Storm Uri, you bring up these conservation notices that we got during uh, the summer record heat wave. And those bring up some different challenges that that the grid faces. With the summer heat wave, as much as people didn't want to get those notices or those, it was essentially voluntary conservation notices. In many ways, I think things worked this summer. Mm -hmm. I know that's not a popular opinion. (laughs) People are like, don't bother me sending me an email. But when you have absolute record heat wave at levels that Houston having more days above 100 than ever before in many parts of the state, 105, 110 degrees plus, um, that's going to put strains on the grid and it put us to levels where, yeah, we need to ask people to conserve, but we never had blackouts. We never got to the point of of even needing truly uh, serious emergency operation. And mm. that the grid should, you don't want to overbuild the grid two or three times what you need where it would be exorbitantly expensive. That's You, you want to be able to build for... The hottest heat wave you're going to get as our summers get hotter though conditions is is that going to change i mean i think some of it's you know people feeling a little like did we just get lucky this summer that we didn't have major rolling blackouts especially we are talking about a a really Mm -hmm. nasty heat wave you know it's we're talking about dangerous conditions if suddenly people don't have power in 110 degrees right heat waves will only get hotter this was an extreme summer i don't think we will always have summers that look like 2023 but 10 years from now we can get an even hotter summer than this. Um, we are fortunately growing in ways that help with the worst of the heat waves is that we would have had rolling blackout after rolling blackout if we had the grid of five years ago mm. this summer. But wow. solar power has been nearly doubling every year going back to 2017 when we hit our first one gigawatt of solar power on the grid to it's been a moving target. We're building them so fast. I don't know if we're at 16 or so, or probably beyond that now, gigawatts of solar on the grid now. ERCOT is projecting that we'll surpass 30 gigawatts within the next couple of summers. And so the times that would have been toughest when it's hot, it is also usually pretty sunny somewhere in Texas or most of Texas. And so solar power was the difference maker between these mild conservation voluntary notices and what would have been uh, some uh, rolling blackouts and on many of those afternoons. So we've, we have built for some of that growth. We have built mm-hmm. for some of this hotter heat. We will continue to, to be building solar farms. If you look at the queue of how many projects that want to be built, it's many times as much as, as all the existing solar farms in Texas today. So I think we're addressing that. What we're going to be facing is, is the, the sunset slump. We're going to have that, mm. that spike of, of power coming offline as the sun sets. And so we'll need, We'll need battery projects. We'll need other sources. One thing that we're looking at that we we have a a study that will be coming out soon is there's also, I think, a needed transition that we're going to need to um, transition away from our coal plants. Coal is is down below gas and wind. It's fallen to the third biggest source from what used to be our biggest source. But whether we do the right thing for our air quality and for health or whether just because those plants don't even meet 
what would have been required in the early 1980s, 40-something years ago, not up to those standards. One reason or another, uh, those plants are going to close. So we do need to build uh, new sources of a variety of types to replace that power that we're about to lose. But we're we're close to being there. And I know as you, you would think that the Texas grid dealing with these heat waves, that would be our worst time. But in fact, Texas has never had a summer blackout, never had a blackout in terms of the grid running short on juice, the grid okay. not having enough power to go around. Of course, trees fall on yeah. transmission lines. Of course, we have hurricanes roll through and knock <laughs> things down. But we've never had a winter storm Uri mm. level blackout in a summer. So summer is addressable. Summer is going to be some tight sunset and post sunset, <laughs> but but actually feel pretty good about where we're going to be on summers. Winter storm Uri is, is a much tougher nut to crack. Winter yeah. storm Uri, we were one third short of what the, we think the demand would have been. We don't even know how high demand would have been because so many homes, a third of homes were, were blacked out during that storm. Over 200 people died in that storm. And it both showed a failure of the fossil grid that we have and a challenge that's going to be faced by a cleaner grid going forward. Most of the problem that happened in the actual storm came from natural gas, both natural mm. gas power plants freezing up, not performing, and the ones that could have still performed not being able to get enough natural gas supply because the natural gas supply systems broke down in, in many different ways. Many studies going through a lot yeah. of intricacies of how that failed uh, coal plants. We lost the third of the output of coal plants, wow. which we think of as being our yeah. firm baseload power. <laughs> We're killing ourselves with their pollution just for the sake of it being firm and reliable. They failed us as the coal piles froze up and other reasons. So it, it failed us for failures of the fossil infrastructure, but going forward, it's going to be tough. It, yeah. When you get a storm like that coming through, you don't have much sun. You get a lot of wind when a wind when a cold front comes through, but then the winds usually die down and get very still uh, after that cold front passes through. It It is not something easily met, no matter how much we grow wind and solar. It's not going to be easy to meet the deepest freezes and we need to be transitioning to more heat pumps which mm. save us energy save us natural gas use 99 percent of the time but their electricity use spikes when it gets very cold and so we will have challenges we will need to keep some traditional uh, power plants around we will need to be looking at at other options we will be much better off if we connect to other grids it, it's going yeah. to be a a range of solutions a transition ways, perhaps it, it, <laughs> Winter, those freezes, we're not going to get as many of them in the future. We are on a warming uh, planet, but, uh, but you know, we can't have another deadly situation that happened then. And, and it's is a different set of solutions that are going to be needed for, for challenges like that. Well, Professor Cohan, I could talk to you all day, and this has been so fascinating. Unfortunately, we are coming at the end of our time here, so I'm, I'm going to have to let you go. But I just want to thank you so much for coming on. The book is Confronting Climate Gridlock, How Diplomacy, Technology, and Policy Can Unlock a Clean Energy Future. Thank you, Professor Daniel Cohan. Thanks, Weston. Great to be with you. Thanks. Um, so now we'll go over. We have uh, the next in our, our series of stories, uh, a piece from Jaden Bray Boyce, one of our researchers, who has a new update on wildfires, specifically around Texas. So we'll go over to Jaden for a conversation all about fire. Hi, everyone. I hope you're doing well this afternoon. This week, I had the pleasure of speaking with Wade Powell about controlled burns, some of the positive aspects, safety precautions, as well as what we can do as a community to actively combat extreme wildfires. So without any further ado, here is Wade Powell. 
Yeah, so my name's Wade Powell. I'm the Wildland Fire and Habitat uh, Management Coordinator for Bastrop and Bisher State Parks. Um, and I work in the State Parks Wildland Fire Program. Um, I have been a wildland firefighter since 2009. Um, I had uh, nine years with the Texas A&M Forest Service and three years with Travis County Parks before coming to work here at TPWD in 2021. So um, I consider myself a fire practitioner um, and uh, really love my job. Oh, wow. Well, thank you so much for explaining that. So now we can jump right in. So people get really nervous when they hear about or see controlled burns. It's by no means a new concept. This is a practice that has been part of the Native American cultures for many millennia. But as the climate is changing, there's an apparent fear elicited when the topic of controlled burns is brought up. So would you be able to walk us through some of the safety measures put in place for both the community and the wildlife's well-being? Absolutely. So um, with regards to um, just general safety measures on the fire line, um, we burn under what's called a prescription. So um, the, uh, the old term kind of controlled burn, um, we, we've moved to calling them prescribed fires because they, they operate under a set of conditions that we choose um and those are like weather conditions and fuels conditions and uh we choose conditions that uh the fire will be easy to contain um and that the effects will be um what we want so they're going to be on the more moderate end of fire behavior um so we you know we don't burn um if it is too dry too windy too hot um, both, both to con control the fire and contain the fire, but also so that we don't um, harm non-target species such as um, the desirable plants that we want on the landscape and wildlife. Um, I'll say that um, the wildlife in our area, um, they evolved with fire, uh, they co-evolved with fire, so they know what to do in the case of a wildfire or a planned fire event. They, they either burrow fly away um, uh, or run away. Um, so um, the, the, the immediate effects to wildlife are minimal and the, the, the end effect is improved habitat for wildlife. That's great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you also mentioning fire adaptive species. Um, expanding on that, certain plants have evolved to thrive in fire prone environments, yet their presence can detrimentally affect native species. While controlled burns appear advantageous, how can we ensure that native species are not inadvertently harmed in the process? Absolutely. So I would say it's a it's really a win win. Um, so the uh, the adapt the fire adaptive species um, operate best on a um, frequent what we call a frequent return interval. That's how how often a, a fire moves through the landscape, um, and then for um, species that are less fire tolerant, having um, prescribed fire uh, under, under moderate or even marginal conditions um, uh, allows them to better withstand the effects of unplanned wildfires that happen on the high end of the spectrum where fire behavior is going to be very intense and, and really damage the, um, the flora and fauna of the area. 
So I know you just mentioned that controlled burns have a positive impact on the flora and fauna, but would you mind sharing an example of positive ecological outcomes resulting from these controlled burns, or perhaps a notable improvement that you've seen firsthand in areas where controlled burns have been conducted over time? Absolutely, um, and thank you for that question. Um, one of our best examples are two units on the park that were burned um, in the spring of 2011. So as some viewers may know, um, 2011 was a catastrophic fire season in the state of Texas and Bastrop County was visited by the um, Bastrop County complex, which was the fire of record for central Texas. Um, so that was a, a very devastating wildfire. It was for most of its um, footprint, uh, what we call a stand replacing fire and that it completely destroyed the mature overstory trees. Um, now, on those two units that were treated earlier in the year with prescribed fire, when, when the Bastrop County complex got to them, uh, the fire dropped out of the canopy of the trees and down to the surface, and it just walked across the landscape instead of rolling across it. And it did what a fire historically is supposed to do, which is it just moved through the understory, and we still have mature um, old growth um, loblolly pine stands in those units thanks to the um, pre-treatment by those prescribed fires. So that being said, would you say with more prescribed burns occurring that wildfires, like extreme wildfires, have reduced in severity and in frequency? Or would you say that this issue is more or less the same um, prior to more prescribed burns occurring? That is a great question. And um, sadly, the frequency of prescribed fires um, is not keeping pace with the challenge of managing the landscape. Um, we simply, um, because of all kinds of constraints, funding, staffing, uh, the, the weather windows, finding the weather windows that, that meet prescription, uh, we're not anywhere close to treating the amount of acres that we need to see a meaningful reduction um, in the frequency and intensity of wildfires. That said, there are a lot of success stories like the one I referenced here around the country um, where prescribed fire and also uh, mechanical fuels treatments have stopped or slowed the spread of, of catastrophic wildfires. And then lastly, just to leave us with some ideas of what we could do, would you be willing to offer some guidance or precautionary steps um, individuals can take to mitigate the likelihood of wildfires or, if possible, minimize their intensity when they do occur? Absolutely. Um, we as uh, homeowners or people living on the landscape uh, have, have some things that are in our control that we can take care of. And I think the, the biggest thing that we can do as individuals is just take care of the area around our homes. Um, there's this concept in wildland fire called defensible space. So if people keep uh, their property um, in order, keep flammable vegetation away from their structures, um, and, uh, you know, make sure that there, there's a lot of resources out there that people can look into um, on defensible space and on firewise planning, things like that. Um, the actions that, that they can take around their house so that when, when and if a fire does occur near their home, uh, fire crews aren't put at risk um, while they try to defend those buildings. 
So first and foremost, thank you so much for speaking with me today. I really appreciate it. For all of you listening out there, I hope this provided you with some clarity in regards to controlled burns. I know it certainly did for me. And hopefully you'll find some of these tips valuable and feasible to implement into your home and community to ensure the safety and well-being of everyone and everything. That being said, join us in the upcoming weeks for the next story about wildfires. I'll be speaking with the Consul General of the Republic of Cyprus to highlight the fact that extreme wildfires are a global issue. So with that, I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks for that, Jaden. Um, we'll continue that series. We're also continuing our series with Sienna, our other researcher on urban design and uh, kind of urban planning going on around Houston in the coming weeks. And so we'll hear more about these each week as we continue to dig into these issues. Uh, before we go, I want to give the floor over to Sienna to tell us about ways you can get involved here in town in Houston this week uh, with volunteering around town. Hey, everyone. This is Sienna coming to you with some upcoming opportunities to get involved. With over 3,000 acres of green space in the Bayou Greenway system, Houston Parks Boards needs volunteers now more than ever to help connect people to their parks and empower the community to enjoy and explore the outdoors. Together, we can build more thriving parks and communities for everyone. If you're eager to lend a hand and support the Houston Parks Board, they've got something special for you. On Saturday, October 28th, from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m., there's a park cleanup event at McGregor Park. Don't worry about the tools and safety equipment. Everything will be provided. It's recommended that you wear long pants and sturdy footwear, with close-toed shoes being a requirement for all projects. Weekend volunteer events welcome everyone from individuals to small groups to families with young children. Everyone is invited to join the park cleanup. To get started, you'll need a volunteer account with the Houston Parks Board. Simply visit houstonparksboard.volunteerhub.com and create your account. Once you're signed in, you can register for this park cleanup or any other opportunities that catch your eye. I hope you guys have a great and wonderful day. Thanks, Sienna. Up next time on Gulf Streams, we're talking with Lisa Lynn, the Director of Sustainability for Harris County, and Richard Johnson, Senior Executive Director for Sustainability at Rice University. Lisa and Richard will talk through what sustainability directors do, what initiatives they're running here in town, and how to get involved. Uh, if you have questions or ideas for what you'd like featured on Gulf Streams, leave a voicemail at 713-348-4081 or email me at westont at rice.edu. Finally, I'd like to remind listeners that KPFT is in our October fund drive. To support more programming, please call 713-526-KPFT, press 1 for donations, and mention Gulf Streams when you pledge to help keep our work going. This work is only possible with your generous support, so please call in to 713-526-KPFT, extension 1, and make a pledge to help keep us on the air and bringing you the most important stories about the environment and our changing climate here in Houston. Gulf Streams is a co-production of KPFT Houston and Rice's Center for Environmental Studies with support from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation and the Rice Sustainability Institute's Eco Studio. Produced by Weston Twardowski, co-produced by Joseph Campana. Audio engineer, Rico Enriquez. Research support provided by Jaden Bray Boyce and CNEN. Stay tuned for the R&R Show with Ronnie Renfro and Tom Richards here on KPFT Houston.